Much of the publicity over Māori water claims has focused on claims involving the state power generators as the government seeks to sell 49% of shares in those companies. But for many claimants, the issue is not shares, but how to regain authority over water they regard as taonga. For nearly 30 years, the Māori trustees of Porati Springs near Whangarei have been fighting for recognition as the custodians of the water that flows from their land. They've watched councils, orchardists and a bottling company secure rights to a resource granted to their hapu by court order more than a century ago. They've watched the water levels dwindle along with the fish and watercress, but the trustees are powerless to intervene. I'm Lois Williams and this insight examines the question of Māori water rights. The government's position is that no one owns fresh water and only regional councils can decide who may take it. Since 1983, the Whareteri Māori trustees have been objecting to applications to take water from Porati Springs. But as their chairperson, Taipari Munro, explains, they have no more influence than any other submitter. The Whareteri trustees are a legislated body. Not only that, they have also been charged with that responsibility by their elders to act responsibly with regard to this resource. Of course, it makes it very difficult for us when, we, when we're not recognised. We, we, we very often come away from hearing feeling like we're flies on the wall. It's because we don't feel like we're even included in what's, what's going on, what's happening with, this, with the discussions that are taking place. The Polity claim is one of 11 before the Waitangi Tribunal, taken jointly with the New Zealand Māori Council, seeking recognition of Māori proprietary rights in water. And the Hapu's lawyer, Roger Bowden, says the Porati case is one of the strongest. Porati must be uh, one of the best examples of how Māori can own water. And if you look at this particular facts of Porati, how it was reserved for them, you'd have to say that their ownership of water there is 100% or very close to it. For hundreds of years before Pākehā, Māori lived at Porati Springs. The fertile volcanic land around nearby Whateteri Mountain was closely held by the three hapū of the area, Te Parafau, Te Uri Roroi and Te Mahurihuri. But that all changed in the late 1800s with European settlement. But despite the loss of thousands of hectares in a very short time, the hapu refused to part with Porati Springs. They applied to the Māori Land Court of the day to make the springs a Māori reserve for the hapu and their descendants forever as a water supply. Roger Barden says the court obliged. At that time, what Māori seemed to have insisted on was the retention of the two acres around the spring. Uh, and in 1896, um, that land, the two acres immediately around the Porati Springs, was uh, vested in certain named individuals, really as trustees, because it was inalienable by sale, mortgage or lease. So it was always intended um, to be for the benefit of those people. From that time onwards, Māori really were in complete control uh, of the springs. For example, in 1957, uh, it was further vested as a, as a Māori reserve for the common benefits of the three named sub-tribes uh, in that area. 
Maori have always been, or were at that stage anyway, uh, directly involved in allocation decisions. And there's plenty of evidence in the Maori land court records of water being sold from the springs to local farmers. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence uh, of Maori exerting or asserting or reasserting uh, control over the springs, really with the complete support of the Maori land court. Fast forward to 2011, and the hapu are sitting in the public seats at a Northland Regional Council water rights hearing. An Auckland company, Zodiac Holdings, is applying to take more water from Porotee Springs with the aim of breaking into the Asian export market. The two other consent holders, the Whangarei District Council and the Maungatapere Irrigation Company, represented by lawyers, are objecting. They say the extra take might affect theirs. The hapu had no lawyer that day. They couldn't afford one. But they voiced strong objections when invited to speak, casting doubt on Zodiac's ability and the council's to measure the health and flow of the springs. One trustee, Lorraine Norris, says hapu have been doing that since 1987, when the Whangarei Council began using the springs for a public water supply. It feels that we, uh, that as a people, we almost, the things that are important to us as a, as, as a hapu, have no meaning at all in that arena. If you look at all of the documentation that's come out of every hearing that we have opposed with regards to the resource uh, process, you will see that we're lucky if we get mentioned, maybe entirely in a a 20-page document, they actually mention anything that we actually say that is relevant culturally to us. If it takes up even a page, it's, it's almost a disregard, an arrogance, they see themselves as not only have they been granted a right, but out their right for whatever reason. It's almost see they believe that it almost supersedes our right. Well, we don't believe that. We never have believed that. But that is the attitude. It's that attitude of entitlement. Entitlement. However, the Auckland businessman Ian Thompson saw things very differently. From his perspective, the water of Porta Tea flowing away downstream is a wasted resource, one that could be earning money for New Zealand and through his company Zodiac providing work for the hapu. We are exporting or planning to export a renewable natural resource. Rainfall comes across the Tasman and it's used for, by the City Council for town supply, it's used by an irrigation company and we would, we are, our application is about using it for bottling um, and that bottling, because the market in New Zealand is fully supplied, um, is directed offshore. So it's a, it's a clean, green, renewable industry that we are talking about with no significant downstream uh, environmental effects. The government's uh, view is that we desperately need to generate new exports and um, to generate foreign exchange and in addition this project would benefit the local community because it provides employment whether it's at the bottling plant in transport or at the port um, it's, uh, it, is, uh, it creates jobs in an area that is job short. The trustees say it's hard to know where to begin in giving a response to that perspective. Taipari Munro says it doesn't just beg the question of who owns the water Mr Smith wants to sell to Asia it ignores the relationship the hapu have with it and the part Porati Springs has played in the lives and rituals of their ancestors over the centuries. It begins at birth when babies are taken to the springs and blessed by their elders, and the water is used again at their baptism by the Catholic Church. It's also used to bless the dying. 
and then there are the generations of warriors who've been taken down to the spring before battle. And where we know that our old people, or that our, that our people are sick, if it's water that they need, very often we'll come and get the water from here and take that water to them. Of course, there's another aspect, though, of course, with this water, in that if those people are on the edge of moving from this world into the next world and they themselves ask for the water of Waipol, then we know that that's going to be the, what, what, the last, the last uh, water that they will drink in this life, that it, it won't be long after the taking of that water that they'll, that they'll pass through into the next life. Through the 50s and 60s, Polity Springs flowed into a stream that ran wide and waist deep and it was an abundant source of food for the hapu. Um, we could swim down here. We could actually swim down through here. Those boulders that you see over there, they're pretty much underwater. And we'll probably... Paul Edmonds has lived at Pulati all his 42 years, raised there by his grandparents. It's depleted a lot. You can see it in old photographs how high the water was in those times. Um, um, for us it was about gathering food here and that. Um, um, I've seen uh, fresh trout come out of here. People wouldn't believe it, but I've seen it come out with my own eyes. And... Um, Eels, tuna. You could um, actually flip the watercress back and the eels will be underneath the watercress. And the crayfish clinging to the watercress. Oh, yeah. Lots of coda. Yeah. Fresh water. Yeah, and um, they were, the crayfish are about maybe two and a half, three inches long, half an inch wide on the tail and that. So, but now it's not even bigger than my fingernail now, the, the water, that crayfish. And as you can see, it's weed. It needs to be abundance of watercress. And um, that was a, a source of uh, food for our people at the Morai to um, feed the people when they came. Because in those times, well, not much money then, so you, you looked to what you had. And, and this place was a, a food basket. Yeah. No longer a food basket. Now it, you might just, just get a half a bag of watercress for your, for your pot, but um, you can't feed a lot of people now. So how has it come about that Māori, who used to have control of their water, even selling it with court approval to local farmers, are now scratching for watercress in ankle-deep water and sitting on the sidelines as decisions are made over how to allocate the resource? Everything changed for the Pōrati Hapu after the government passed the Water and Soil Conservation Act in 1967. Government officials believed New Zealand's water resources were coming under increasing pressure from often conflicting demands and usages. Until 1967, water rights were mostly determined by common law, that is, they were decided case by case by the courts over the years and catered to the needs of all farmers, landowners, including Māori. David Alexander is an historical researcher who's given evidence on this era to the Waitangi Tribunal. There was no statute law which specifically spelled out who was the owner of the water, and therefore everyone was obliged to look to the common law, which is the, the accumulation of legal decisions over a long period of time. And that accumulation started in England, uh, included English laws that were brought to New Zealand, and then any decisions of New Zealand courts uh, subsequently. David Alexander says the 1967 Water and Soil Conservation Act replaced most common law with statute and effectively nationalised fresh water. The Waitangi Tribunal has found the Act is in breach of the treaty. While silent on ownership, it gave the Crown the sole right to use fresh water and delegated the job of allocating it to regional water boards. 
Farmers at the time saw the implications immediately. The rights they'd had under common law to water stock would be extinguished. They lobbied successfully to have clauses included in the Act, giving them the right to use and take water for their animals. But Mr Alexander says no one appears to have given any thought to the existing Māori water rights. And in the thousands of government files he's searched over the years, he's found no sign that anyone ever considered the treaty. And yet he says the implications were serious. If you come back to the, the treaty, uh, you've got Article 1 where the Crown is, has the right to govern, and you have Article 2 where Māoris are able to keep their tino rangatiratanga of their resources. Now, the Crown has always placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that uh, its right to govern sometimes means that it does have to override uh, Māori interest. But uh, the Waitangi Tribunal, when looking at these, is saying, OK, when the Crown wants to exercise its governing governance right, it has to do that having regard for the fact that it is acknowledged that Māori are entitled to retain the resources that they've always held. Now, Māori, in terms of retaining their resources... In the English translation, it's probably sufficient to say that those resources can include water. In the Māori translation, they are that Māori are entitled to retain their taonga. Taonga is something that the Waitangi Tribunal has identified as can be applicable to particular rivers. The Crown has recognised the value Māori place on a number of lakes and rivers, their role as kaitiaki or guardians, and their ownership of lake beds such as taupo. It's reached co-governance agreements with major iwi over rivers like the Waikato. It says Māori are important stakeholders in freshwater management and it's working with iwi leaders on ways to include them in that. But for many hapu and claimants like those at Poroti, the issue is control of their resource. Taipari Munro says Māori can't be true kaitiaki when their rangatiratanga, their authority over the springs, has been stripped from them by statute. He says kaitiakitanga involves more than being a stakeholder and the trustees should be at the top table as partners of the Crown when it comes to allocating water. Mr Munro says it's that authority, promised to Māori by Article 2 of the treaty, that they want restored, rather than ownership in the European sense. What does that word mean to us? That word to us means kaitiakitanga. I'm reluctant to even say that it means guardianship because, you know, once again, you're dealing with the English language and this is what, what guardianship means within the English language. But it doesn't exactly fit with what that means within the Māori language. When we talk about having proprietary right, it still links back to the guardianship, that within our guardianship of these springs, that we've got a responsibility to take care of the springs, to try to ensure that the resource is here all the time for the people, and not only for the tribes here, but for the rest of the community in this place, because that's the way in which our elders have charged this resource. They haven't said this resource is only for you, for you Māori. They've been very strong in expressing that this resource here should be made available to the people, to the wider community. So for us, we see ourselves as doing what we have been charged to do by our, with what we have inherited from our, our parents and from our elders and indeed from the gods themselves. In at least one case, Lake Omapiri in Northland, Māori do have title to the water itself. David Alexander says Ngāpui went to court early last century to protect the lake as an important source of eels and other food. They applied for title to that because they thought that uh, 
the way that it was being treated around the edges of the lake where people were seeking to uh, drain and develop for farmland was having an, an impact for them. So they applied to the Maori Land Court for a title to the lake. The Maori Land Court did agree that in 1929 that a title could be issued. And in its decision, which was a sort of almost like a groundbreaking decision, it decided that uh, if title to the lake was to be issued, that title had to include the water of the lake because it saw that the water was indivisible from the lake itself. Now this was almost like anathema to the Crown. The Crown had consistently and rigorously refused to accept that uh, water was included in any title. So it challenged that 1929 decision. That appeal was never heard until 1950 or so, when the Crown, in effect, withdrew its appeal. What it had discovered was that uh, it was concerned to see the land around possibly drained for farmland, but it then discovered, that, as it, as it did so, that that land around was peat. So if the, ever the land was ever drained, it would shrink and then would go underwater again. So the Crown realised that uh, it was on a hiding to nothing, it withdrew its appeal, and the title was then issued, and that title includes the bed of the lake and the water in the lake as well. That's one of the few, very few, instances around the country where water is included in a title. But for many New Zealanders, the idea that anyone can own natural water goes against the grain. These were the thoughts of six people in Whangarei last week. Most struggled with the idea. I feel that the water should be everybody's. I don't know enough about it. I think it stinks. They've got no right to our water. I think every New Zealander should have equal rights. I don't know anything about the water, Maori water claim. And uh, Anyway, if they claim it, I think they'd let us use the water, though. I'm sure they would. I don't think you can own anything that, that moves through property. If it's going through property, then it can't be owned. If it's still or something like that and it's on land that's owned, then perhaps it uh, could be classed as ownership. Yeah, you, you get a bit sick and tired of hearing the Maori's want this and they want that. And, but, um, hey, I think um, if they can halt the, um, the sale of our power stations and that, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a nonsense. I think everybody owns the water, it falls out of the sky and we all own it equally. The chairman of the New Zealand Māori Council, Sir Eddie Dury, says many people still have the wrong impression of what the water claims are all about. There seems to be a general opinion that the Māoris are claiming all the water in New Zealand. First point is we are not claiming all the water in New Zealand. In fact, we are claiming specific interests in particular places. The issue then is not really about the ownership of water, but who should be able to access it and for what purpose. And what I think the council is saying is that water should be available for all people to access for domestic needs and the like. But once you start to commercialise it, it's a different story. At that point we're saying, well hold on, there are prior rights. If you're going to sell it, there are prior rights that have got to be looked at. Or if you're going to privatise it. And what we're seeing in the sale of shares of Mighty River Power, I think, is the first step in privatisation. While the Māori water claims may seem to have come from out of nowhere last year, Māori have been asking the Crown for many years to recognise their interests in fresh water, as far back as 1903, in fact. And that year, the government passed the Water Power Act, awarding the state the exclusive right to use water to generate electricity in the colony. 
The MP for Northern Māori, Honi Heke, nephew of the flag chopper, protested in the House in these words. I speak in regard to waterfalls on Māori lands. It would not be proper for a bill like this to take away from Māori owners the use of water power on their lands. There's no telling to what use the Māoris may desire to put such water power for themselves. If the Crown wishes to acquire water power on Māori land, it remains for them to acquire it from the natives. But this sweeping provision is going too far. It's an attempt to take away native rights. But the Minister for Public Works reassured the Northern Māori MP. He said a condition of the water power bill was that it was subject to any rights then lawfully held. He explained that if there were vested interests held by the natives, they would be preserved, and if required by the Crown, those interests would have to be paid for. Māori say the problem is that from that day to this, the Crown has failed to investigate those interests, let alone acquire or pay for them. Brian Cox is the former development manager of the New Zealand Electricity Corporation, the state-owned enterprise that later split into the power generators Meridian, Genesis and Mighty River Power. He says over the years the lack of clarity over what property rights Māori hold in water has been problematic, not just for Māori but for power companies trying to negotiate with iwi. Well, it always made it difficult because when you're negotiating, you want to be able to negotiate with someone who you know has the authority to negotiate and that they are negotiating from uh, a clear understanding of what their rights are and what your rights are. And that way you can get a win-win type situation. When you were negotiating with a party that uh, didn't really know uh, what rights it had, in this case over water, then it really made it really difficult and uh, negotiations always were prolonged because uh, no one knew what the rights were of Māori to the water and it always came up in every discussion and um, if that had been addressed uh, by the Crown then this certainly would have made uh, negotiations and development of the geothermal and the hydro resources much better and easier. But we were in a situation that we were not the party to address that. It really was up to the Crown, and we always suggested to them that they should go and talk to the Crown. We were very happy to talk to them about uh, utilisation of the water, and we always accepted that they may come to an agreement with the Crown uh, that involved some royalties or other things. Uh, and that would just be, uh, from our point of view, just another uh, situation like taxes or any other rules that we would operate under. But it was between the Māori and the Crown. And because the Crown had never addressed this, this was a real problem for negotiations. Following the Waitangi Tribunal's interim report on the water claims inquiry last August, which declared Māori had residual proprietary interests in a number of water bodies, the government said it accepted that Māori have certain rights in water. But a principal in the Māori law team at the firm Chen Palmer, Baden Vertongan, says at this point those rights remain undefined. There's clearly some sort of Māori right to water, and the Crown's recognised that, and the difference of opinion is um, the Māori position is that's an ownership proprietary type right, whereas the Crown is, is saying no, that's more of a um, consultative, kaitiaki, um, vague type of right. And what, is, what hasn't been defined is exactly who's right and where on that spectrum. Mr Vertongan says it's correct that in common law no one owns the water, but he says when common law arrives in a new country with a colonising power, the practice is to accommodate the existing rights of those already there. general position is that 
the colonising power comes in and it applies its own legal system, its own, in this case, the, the common law, but it does that with a view to adapting it to the particular local circumstances so that it can take into account the ownership rights that existed at the time. Colonising power comes in and applies its law but still respects the right that the existing Indigenous people own, own their stuff and have existing rights to the things they had interest in at, the, at that time. Baden Vertonghen says in New Zealand's case, Article 2 of the Treaty, guaranteeing Māori the full, undisturbed and exclusive possession of their stuff, as it were, only reinforced their existing rights. The government says it's dealing with grievances about water with the groups involved through the treaty settlement process. But in the Māori Council's recent appeal to the Supreme Court to delay the partial sale of state power companies, claimants disputed that. The council's lawyer, Donna Hall, says Hapu accused the government of using the settlement process to make water claims go away. We had evidence in the uh, courts showing that tribes like Tanifa Springs, Rangiwiwihi, uh, were told the water just was not going to be addressed. Uh, we had a similar position coming through from the Wanganui River peoples and from Waikato. Uh, we had very strong evidence in there from groups saying that the Crown just wouldn't address the question of an ownership interest in water. And so, in reality, what was placed in front of the Supreme Court was the, a statement that was then challenged. It's not that the Crown is dealing with Māori claims to an interest in water through the settlement process. What it in fact is doing is it's extinguishing those claims through the settlement process. Tribes work very hard to get a settlement and then they get told you take this settlement or nothing and water is just not addressed so it's an extinguishment of the claims. The Chief Justice referred to all of the reports that had been named by the Waitangi Tribunal as, as examples of, of, sort of death by drip. The Minister for Treaty Negotiations, Chris Finlayson, says the government believes fresh water is a common property. But he says the Minister for the Environment, Amy Adams, is looking closely into the key issues, including allocation and who derives financial advantage from it. Mr Finlayson says he's taking a personal interest in the claim involving Porati Springs. It's one of the many reasons why I'm very keen to negotiate with Ngāpui and why I've been working very hard with them uh, directly and through Chief Crown negotiators so that they can get their mandate and so that these very issues can be addressed. I've done a little bit of work on uh, Paroti Springs and uh, it's an issue that I'm very much looking forward to negotiating uh, with the uh, mandated Ngāpui body. The Māori Council and the water claimants groups are now awaiting the outcome of their appeal to the Supreme Court. They say if they lose, the Waitangi Tribunal's Stage 2 hearings will tackle what they say is the long overdue definition of their rights in fresh water. I'm Lois Williams and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radioNZ.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Chris Keogh.